the Christian faith places enormous emphasis on knowledge. And in scriptural terms, the greatest knowledge that we may possess is knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The evangelist, Mark, was particularly concerned that we are to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to know who he is. For fundamentally, there can be no true faith, no genuine faith, unless it is based on a genuine knowledge of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Mark sets out as his mission to reveal the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the descriptions used of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and also in the other Gospels is the title, Son of Man. This title has been a main source of debate and discussion among New Testament scholars and particularly those who are concerned with the Gospels. Son of Man. It is a term that occurs some 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew, some 25 times in Luke, and some 13 times in this Gospel of Mark. We find it at various places throughout the Gospel of Mark, but we find it in chapter 8 and verse 31. And he began to teach them The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Son of man. It was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. That when he referred to himself, he referred to himself over and over again as son of man. Here, Mark brings to us this designation used by our Lord. And this passage here in Mark chapter 8 follows the great question that the Lord Jesus asks of the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter, with this tremendous response, clearly a gift of God, an illumination from God, by which he was able to perceive the true nature of Christ, Peter was able to respond to the Lord, you are the Christ. We see that in chapter 8, verse 29. And our Lord warning them that they are not to tell others about this. It is right after this, after this tremendous confession, that the Lord began to teach them. And to say that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. This is what some theologians call as a passion prediction. A prediction of his suffering, of his death to come. And right here the Lord uses a term of himself, the Son of Man. It's interesting that there are three times that we find the term Son of Man occurring in what we call passion narratives. We find a passion prediction, sorry, here in chapter 8, verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things. We find the same prediction of his suffering with Son of Man 
again in chapter 8 and verse 31. And there's a third time in the Gospel of Mark where this prediction of his death is prefaced by the designation Son of Man. It occurs in chapter 10 and verse 33. So these three passion predictions contain the designation Son of Man. What we want to do is to explore the title Son of Man in the context of Mark's gospel and particularly in the context of this passion prediction as we find it here in chapter 8, 31, chapter 9, 31, chapter 10, 33. The first thing we must ask is why does Jesus use Son of Man? What does it mean? Well, we know that the Son of Man was a term used in the Old Testament, was used in Psalm 8. But it was also used, and more particularly used, in Ezekiel. Over and over in the prophecy of Ezekiel, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? Son of man. Over and over. That was God's designation of Ezekiel. Son of man, do you see what they're doing? Generally, the term son of man refers to one's humanity. Just simply refers to man. And Jesus uses it in that sense. But I want to suggest to you that the reason that the Lord Jesus uses Son of Man, it is because of its dual role, its dual function. That on one hand, the title Son of Man refers to his humanity, his physicality, but at the same time, Son of Man refers to him as the divine Messiah. I want us to look then at what it means, Jesus, Son of Man, in the context of this book and the passion predictions. First of all, Son of Man reveals that Jesus, or shows us that Jesus is the authoritative Son of Man revealed. When we read in chapter 831, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed after three days, arise again. We need to understand that this title, Son of Man, must be interpreted in conjunction with the earlier references to Son of Man. And the first instance of the title, Son of Man, used by the Lord Jesus, occurs in Mark chapter 2 and verse 10. You remember the context well. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in a home. And there was a man who was a paralytic whose his friend had brought to Jesus, but the house was packed and they could not make space for the man to be brought in before Jesus. So the friends of this paralytic were quite ingenious. They went up to the roof and they removed the covering of the roof and they lowered the man before Jesus. Well, he never had much to lose. He was already paralyzed. If he were to fall... Was he going to be paralyzed? Well, he didn't have much to lose. And they lowered the man before the Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells us that when the Lord Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends who took this extraordinary route to Jesus, and the man himself who must have consented, that the Lord Jesus responded to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. 
But there were in that house scribes who were outraged because they recognized that the forgiveness of sins was the exclusive prerogative of of God. You know, the, the Anglican priest may believe that he has a power to forgive sins, but only the one against whom we have sinned can forgive. And when we sin against God, only God can forgive. No man can forgive on God's behalf. But Jesus now says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. And these who were looking on were quite incensed because they recognized that the Lord Jesus implicitly was claiming divinity, taking the place of God. And they viewed him as an usurper. And so the Lord Jesus, in verse 10, responds and makes it very clear that he has the power to forgive sins. He says, so you may know that the Son of Man has power, exousia, authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Just like you, you need to know that I have authority in the spiritual realm then I'm going to show you that I have it in the physical realm. And by seeing this man raised up, then you know that I'm able also in the spiritual realm to raise him up, to forgive him, to transform him. But Jesus uses the term authority. You need to understand then that the Son of Man is the authoritative Son of Man revealed. Jesus is the authoritative Son of Man, the one who has the power to forgive sins. The second occurrence of Son of Man occurs at the end of chapter 2 of Mark. Here there is this increasing tension between Jesus Christ and the Jews and the Pharisees in particular. And it so happened on the Sabbath, we are told, that the Lord Jesus and the disciples were going through a grain field. And the disciples, we find in verse 23 to 28 of chapter 2 of Mark, began to pluck some of the grain of corn and began to eat. Well, I don't know how comes the Pharisees were close by in that grain field, but whatever, however they were, they were able to find out. And they objected and complained that the disciples were doing what was not lawful on the Sabbath. In, in essence, they were saying that they were harvesting, the disciples were harvesting on the Sabbath, they were working. Now, you would expect the Lord Jesus to contend that picking grains to eat on the Sabbath is not work. But the Lord doesn't do that. What the Lord does is that he cites an example of one who ostensibly broke the law. He cites the example in 1 Samuel 21 of David, who goes to Nob and goes to Abimelech, the priest, and asks for the showbread there were 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the table before the most holy place every Sabbath. It was only reserved for the high priest and his descendants. And yet David, who is a commoner, he's not, a, he, he's not yet king, he's not a priest, but he asked for bread for himself and his men. And our Lord Jesus is saying, here is a man, a mere man like David, who violates the requirements, the cultic religious requirements given by God. 
how much more myself can supersede the requirements of the Sabbath? And that the Lord says, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He's talking about his authority. And so the notion of the Son of Man, titled Son of Man, is associated with the authority of Christ. And I want to suggest to you that the authority, the Son of Man as one who's authoritative, goes back to the book of Daniel in chapter 7. And particularly in verses 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions. He had a vision. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which will not, or which will not be, shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is the authoritative Son of Man revealed. And part of that we find in chapter 2, where I pointed out to you, in verse 10, that Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power, its authority, its exousia, that is referred to here. So you may know the Son of Man has authority. Well, when you look in the book of Daniel chapter 7, and you look particularly at the term that is used, in verse 14, the term that the, 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 the Septuagint, the Greek translation here, uses is authority. And in fact, it occurs three times in verse 14. Then to him was given dominion. That term in our text, translated dominion, is exousia, authority. Then to him was given authority and glory and a kingdom. So the first occurrence of authority is dominion, the first dominion used, but it's used three times. Then to him was given dominion or authority and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. The second occurrence of authority is used in this sentence, his dominion, that is his authority, is an everlasting dominion. So in other words, what the writer says, his authority is an everlasting authority that shall not pass away. When Jesus, therefore, refers to himself as son of man, and he says in Mark 2.10 that he has authority, exousia, our Lord Jesus Christ is identifying himself with Daniel's son of man, the one who comes to the ancient of days and receive an eternal authority, an everlasting authority, an everlasting kingdom. The title, Son of Man, thus refers to Jesus Christ as the authoritative Son of Man revealed. But the title, Son of Man, also identifies Jesus Christ as the suffering Son of Man rejected. And that, I think, is more explicitly revealed here in our passage in Mark 8 and 31. And he began to teach them 
For the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, he is not only the authoritative Son of Man revealed, he is the suffering Son of Man rejected. Now one may find it odd that on one hand, in chapter 2, verse 10 of Mark, Jesus is presented as the authoritative Son of Man. But here, he is depicted as the suffering Son of Man. Son of Man rejected. And these seem to be two contrasting pictures. How do you get the Son of Man who is authoritative, who rules over an everlasting kingdom, yet nevertheless he is the suffering Son of Man? This seems like a paradox. And yet, this is precisely what is happening here. That these two pictures of Christ are to be kept in concert. They go together. That the authoritative son of man is also the suffering son of man. And this text makes it very clear because Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer. Well, you may say, well, how does this then accord with the picture of the son of man in Daniel chapter 7? I would suggest to you that while in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we do not see the picture of a suffering son of man. What we do see in Daniel, especially in chapter 7, 21, is the suffering people of God. The saints were suffering. And Mark, therefore, pictures the Lord Jesus, not only then as the one who suffers alongside his people, but the one who suffers on behalf of his people. He's a suffering son of man. You know, there, were, there, were, there was a question that has been asked in New Testament theology as to Jesus' messianic consciousness. At what stage did Jesus know he was Messiah? I want to suggest to you that at this point in time, our Lord already knew that he had to suffer. And in fact, from very early on in his childhood, he knew he had to be about his father's business. I would suggest to you that our Lord was conscious he was the divine Messiah from birth, from he came into this world. Our Lord Jesus knew that his calling. Here then we have these two pictures. The authoritative son of man and the suffering son of man. And what Mark does is ingenious. Because he blends two images of Jesus. He blends Daniel's authoritative son of God with Isaiah's suffering servant. That the one who has the highest authority is nevertheless the ultimate sufferer. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. We notice a few things about the sufferings of the son of man. First of all, Mark tells us that the suffering of the Son of Man was necessary. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Do you know, it is rather interesting that Jesus begins to teach his disciples about his coming sufferings. And each time in the Prediction, in, in the prediction of his death, each time Jesus predicts his death 
as we have it here in chapter 831, chapter 931, chapter 1033. This prediction of his suffering and death is followed by instruction about discipleship. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that when our Lord Jesus wishes to teach the disciples about true discipleship, he prefaces it by talking about his suffering and death. He will go on later on, for example, in chapter 8, to tell them that if they're going to follow him as disciples, they must take up their cross and follow him. But that is prefaced by him telling them that he's going to the cross. It's significant. It's something we need to think about. In chapter 9, the same thing. He tells them before he calls them to embrace a life of servanthood, he tells them that he also will suffer. And the same thing can be found in chapter 10. Before our Lord Jesus calls them again to servanthood, he again reminds them that his way is a way of suffering. Every time he's going to make a major teaching on discipleship, he prefaces it, at least here in Mark, with a reminder. And he reminds them that his suffering was necessary. He's a suffering son of man, and his suffering was necessary. You notice in the text, that little word day in the Greek. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. Must it's a little word with great import. Must. Because the Old Testament had already predicted his sufferings. There we read of it in Isaiah 52, verses 1 to chapter 53, verse 12, of the suffering of the servant of God. It was predicted in the scripture, he must suffer many things. But he must suffer many things because it was the design of God. It was the will of God that the Lord Jesus Christ could suffer. He was not merely taken by wicked men. But he was delivered up by the determined purpose and counsel of God. He must. Why? Because the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ was a mission of suffering. That indeed our Lord who has come to redeem his people to rescue must rescue them through suffering. He must. Sin could not be atoned for with a light-hearted wave of the hand. God could not merely summarily dismiss our sins, saying it doesn't really matter. There had to be a payment. There had to be a sacrifice. Someone has to pay for sins, either you or the Lord Jesus Christ, but somebody must pay. Thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ paid. Yes. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. His suffering was necessary because it must address God's holiness. It must remove sin from the sight of God. But you notice the suffering of the Lord, or the suffering of the Son of Man, as described here, was not only necessary, but was extensive and ultimately an ultimate suffering. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things. We had committed many sins. Our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, suffered in many ways. Well, how did he suffer many things? It refers to the whole range of abuse he endured, particularly 
in the last moments of his life. He endured the arrest as a common criminal in the garden. He went through the farce of a trial, a sheer mockery of justice, before Annas and Caiaphas and before Herod and Pilate. Because Pilate could de- declare him, I find no fault in him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine you go to court and when the judge comes over the sentence, he says, I find no fault in you, and then he sends you off to, to be executed? He was beaten, spat upon, boxed. The Son of Man must suffer many things. His suffering was extensive. And our Lord taught them that an aspect of his extensive suffering is that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. We're talking about three groups. These are the representatives of the people. These are the groups that make up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the religious body, the official religious body in Israel. It consisted of 70 men. And in this group, there were these three divisions. There was the elders. Now, it doesn't mean that there were gray-headed men. Elders. It just means that there were those who represented the nobility, the big shots in Israel. These are the people who represented the elites, the elders. And then there was another group. These were the chief priests. And here, then, this group of chief priests represented the entire priestly caste or clan in Israel. And then the scribes, the religious professors, the religious experts, the people who knew the Bible or the Old Testament back and front and understood all of the halakha, the whole body of oral tradition. They were the interpreters then of the law. And together, they symbolized that the entire leadership of Israel were united in their opposition. They rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He must suffer many things. Abuse. But here it is rejection. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. We think of the psalmist in Psalm 117. Where the psalmist says that the stone that the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus can quote that same verse here in Mark's gospel. He is a stone that the builder rejected. He is a stone that the builder looks upon and says, this is of no use. It can't go in this building. It can't work. And he tosses it aside. But this stone that the builder has rejected is the same stone that God has taken and used as the foundation stone for a new temple. A spiritual temple consisting of believers. He's building a new temple based upon the foundation who is Jesus Christ the Lord. The stone that the builder has rejected is indeed the capstone, the chief cornerstone. You see, what men think is of no value, God 
highly prized. In Jesus, you see, his suffering was extensive because he suffered rejection, but his suffering was ultimate. Because our Lord tells the disciples that not only will he be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, but he will be killed. He predicted his death. He will be killed. His suffering will be a suffering that leads to death. He will be crucified on the cross. It is an ultimate price that he will pay. He will pay with his life. He will give his life for our life. He will be taken. The shepherd will be struck for his sheep. But this suffering, this suffering that is necessary and extensive and ultimate, this suffering is redemptive because the suffering of the Son of Man is to redeem. And our Lord Jesus makes it clear that his suffering was not in vain. So he says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lutron, ransom, means the price paid for deliverance. This suffering, though necessary and though extensive that leads to the cross, is a redemptive suffering. It is the price that Jesus Christ paid that you and I may be saved. That our salvation is achieved at the highest cost. It is the blood of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that has delivered us from our sins. He has paid a price. And that is the reason that the individual who believes in Jesus Christ knows that he will never suffer loss because God will not demand two price for the same sin. Christ has paid and paid all that is required. Jesus then is the authoritative son of man revealed. But he is the suffering son of man rejected. We don't need to know that Jesus is also the vindicated Son of Man resurrected from the dead because our Lord Jesus refers to himself. And he says that after three days, he will rise again. In all of these three passion predictions, though there are differences in wording, the idea remains the same. One thing is consistent in these predictions is that Jesus will rise on the third day. Here, Mark says that Jesus said he'll, be ri- he'll rise after three days. We must not place and be overly concerned about the term after three days, as though our Lord was saying that he was going to be raised after the t- third day, so he'll be raised on the fourth day. It is very well known that often the way Jews uh, the, the, the ancient Jews calculated time was different. They, they often viewed part of a day as a whole day. And so, though Jesus rose on the third day, it could easily be said that he rose after three days because they already saw the day, even the first part of it, as the entirety of the day. What is fundamental is that our Lord Jesus speaks of his resurrection on the third day. And what is clear is this, that Jesus speaks not only of the necessity of his death. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. But this little word must 
does not only govern the suffering of the Son of Man, it also governs his rising from the dead. The Son of Man must also rise on the third day. When you follow Mark, you will realize that for him, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the prelude to glory. That is, the resurrection of the Son of Man is viewed by Mark as a resurrection to glory and sovereign dominion. It's very interesting how the Lord Jesus picks up the language of Son of Man. And when he uses it, especially in the latter part of his life before the cross, that he uses Son of Man in reference not merely to his resurrection, but to his glorious coming. So you find how the Lord Jesus taps into the language of Daniel. For if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, 13, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now when Jesus began to speak in the latter days, he says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with a great power and glory. Mark 13, 24 to 26. Jesus is using the language of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. When Jesus comes before the high priest who asks Jesus with some consternation, in other words, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He was at his wit's end. Just just tell me plainly, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Son of God? Jesus responds to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, 62. See, Jesus does not merely speak to his resurrection, but it is a resurrection unto glory. He describes then the consummation as the consummation of the Son of Man in glory. That he will come on the clouds. That he will come to rule and to reign over his creation. And so then this expression, the Son of Man, used in these predictions, these passion predictions, point to Jesus as the authoritative Son of Man revealed, the suffering Son of Man rejected, and the vindicated Son of Man resurrected for glory. What we have before us is a depiction of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he is the authoritative Son of Man. And in this world in which we live, there are different authority matrices different authority environments. We have the structure of the family where children are under their parents. There's an authority structure there. There's an authority structure or matrix in society where we have politicians who are elected to office. We have the judiciary. We have the police. And we are at the bottom. We have an authority structure in our employment. We have the boss or the owner, and then we have supervisors, and then we have workers, employees. 
And very often, there is not much interplay or exchange in these authority matrices. They are often mutually exclusive, so that though you may have a boss at work, he can't come home and tell you what to cook for dinner. And if he does that, he's going to get fired by you. Because he's out of his bounds. You don't have overlapping, then, authorities. But where Jesus Christ is concerned, he's the authority in every area. He's the authority of our work. He's the authority of our play. He's the authority of our spending of money. You see, he is the authority over all of life. The Son of Man has power or authority over the Sabbath. He has authority over life and death, over the area of forgiveness and non-forgiveness. And you and I must recognize that we are under one true and genuine authority, the authority of Christ. And we must submit to him. We must bow our knees to him because he alone is king and he rules. We must surrender ourselves to Jesus. We must accept his authority that is revealed. It should no longer be what I think and what I wish. But everything must be seen through the prism of Christ. What does Christ think of this? Does he approve of this action? What is the mind of Christ on this matter? Ultimately, you see, we are under Christ. And the truly wise person, the truly wise person is a person who knows who is in charge. It won't make sense, you know, for you to go get a job in an office and walk into that office and start walking around giving everybody you see instructions about what they should be doing, especially when nobody appointed you. You need to know when you're in an office who is in charge and to whom you answer. And if you make that mistake of not knowing who is in charge and behaving as if though you are in charge, you're going to find yourself, unfortunately, with other jobs, not for, not after very long. You need to know who's in charge in this world. It's not our politicians. Though God has placed them in the authority, there is a higher authority than our politicians, than our educators. That authority is Jesus Christ. And we must hear first from him and submit ourselves to him to do his will first. We must always seek to be on the right side of Christ. To have his approval. To live so as to please him. We must also know that not only is Christ then the ultimate authority to whom we must surrender, we must know that Christ is the unique sufferer, one who was betrayed and abandoned. Nevertheless, he is indeed the true sufferer, the one who suffers for our sins. And in suffering for our sins, he reveals to us the sacrificial love of God because God gave his son And out of love he has come to bear our sins. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate sufferer. And so very often we ourselves suffer. And we may ask the question, where is God in all of this? But one thing we can never say is that our Lord does not understand. Because he suffered unto death. We have not yet suffered unto blood. But Jesus suffered unto death. And so we must live this life knowing that Jesus 
suffered the pain that we could not suffer. Bear a bore the load we could not carry. Face the wrath of God. Drank from the bitter cup. Wept, oh my, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Was forsaken and rejected for us. The ultimate sufferer. And we too are called to share in his sufferings. To go forth outside the camp bearing his reproach. We are called in this world to bear suffering. And and let's be very clear. If you identify with Christ, you are identifying with a road of suffering. Because even as the master himself has suffered, so will we also suffer. We too must take up our cross and follow him. But let's be very clear that though our Lord is the ultimate sufferer, he is the risen Lord, and he is the Lord of glory, that after suffering comes glory. For Mark, this sufferer is the risen Lord, the, the Lord of glory, the Lord who will come with the clouds. And you must know that One day he will come that the future belongs to Christ. That he is the Lord of glory. And that those who suffer with him here will one day share his glory. And so I close with the words of Daniel in Daniel 12, 2 and 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn away many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. May God help you that you know this Christ, who is indeed the authoritative son of man, who is the suffering son of man, but is also the risen son of man, vindicated and coming to reign for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.